Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good morning, and thank you for, for your patience and, uh, and sticking around. Uh, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is Rob Bluey, and I'm the Vice President of Communications and the Executive Editor of The Daily Signal. Um, as a courtesy to our speaker, I'd ask that uh, you please silence your cell phones, although don't turn them off, because we uh, certainly encourage you to help us spread the word about this event on social media. Uh, speaker Gingrich has been using the hashtag collusion, so I would uh, suggest that uh, you use that uh, as well as in the book title. Well, um, finally, uh, for those who are tuning in online, uh, I'd ask that uh, if you have a question that you'd like to ask, please email it to speaker at heritage.org. Again, it's speaker at heritage.org, and we'll consider that question. Um, finally, uh, just a logistical note, uh, Speaker Gingrich will be signing books uh, after his remarks. Um, we're going to do that out in the, uh, the Kleintob lobby. So as you exit the auditorium here, if you don't have a copy of the book already, you can purchase one and then head to the lobby and he'll uh, be able to sign a copy for you. Well, storytelling is one of the most effective and important ways that we as humans communicate. And at a time when tweets and cable news seem to dominate our lives, uh, at least those of us in Washington, that is, a good story still has the potential to break through the noise to bring us together, to move us emotionally, and to help explain the complex world in which we live. Uh, that's the reason that the Heritage Foundation created the Daily Signal five years ago to help us put a human face on so many of those policy issues and tell important stories. And we are fortunate to have with us today at the Heritage Foundation one of America's great storytellers to talk about his new novel, Collusion. Newt Gingrich and his co-author, Pete Early, have written a masterful story that weaves together facts and current events in a gripping novel. It's a story of two American heroes who are confronting their own struggles while at the same time facing challenges from Russia and its desire to poison its enemies. The book is dedicated to poison victims and others who have been murdered by Vladimir Putin and his Russian regime, and it contains a list of the victims at the end of the story. Speaker Gingrich and his co-author have previously teamed up to write three fiction books, and you won't be disappointed by this one. It's truly an honor to welcome you to the Heritage Foundation, where you have spoken many times before. Uh, Speaker Gingrich is a longtime friend of Heritage, who first started attending events and meetings here after his election from Georgia to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1978. He went on to help President Reagan throughout the 1980s, authored the Contract with America, and spearheaded the 1994 Republican Revolution that brought the House of Representatives under Republican control for the first time in 40 years. He was elected and served as the 50th Speaker of the U.S. House and ran for president in 2012, winning primary victories in South Carolina and Georgia. 
Speaker Gingrich knows what it is like to fight the Washington swamp and challenge the establishment because he has been doing it for his entire career. Today, he is a Fox News contributor. Through Gingrich Productions, he has produced and hosted many successful documentary films. He's also the host of Newt's World podcast, which is distributed by Westwood One. In 2017, he came to Heritage to deliver a series of six lectures called Understanding Trump, which later became the topic of his best-selling book by the same name. He continues to serve as a regular advisor to President Trump, providing both valuable historical perspective on the issues and a vision for America's future. His wife, Callista, also an accomplished author, is currently serving as ambassador to the Vatican. Collusion is the most recent of his remarkable 36 books. 16 of those have become New York Times bestsellers. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Speaker Gingrich. Well, let me begin by apologizing. We were on the parkway, and uh, all of a sudden traffic just stopped. And it turned out that a 14-foot-tall truck was trying to go through a 12-foot-tall bridge. And got, as you know, the parkway, you can't get off of it. So this poor guy had gotten down to the point of the bridge. And they were gradually trying to back him up. And he's, he's probably going to spend half the day just getting off the parkway. But it had stopped everything because it reduced to one lane. And that one lane went slower because everybody was gawking at the truck because they went by. So anyway, I believe, as those of you who know Washington traffic know these things happen. I apologize. Let me talk about collusion, and then I'll take questions. Um, when, first of all, I'm very fortunate to have Pete Early as, as a partner in writing these things. Because Pete, who was a daily newspaper reporter, uh, turned novelist and also writer in general, had written uh, with the highest-ranking KGB officer to defect, a book about the KGB. He had written two books about uh, spies in the United States who were spying for Russia. Uh, and in addition, because part of this book involves uh, the great problem we have with opioid addiction, uh, he has a very long record in mental illness and dealing with issues. He spent a year inside Leavenworth Prison uh, talking with the prisoners in their life and a year in a prison in Miami. Uh, he is, I think, considered nationally an expert on the whole issue of mental illness in prisons. Uh, and uh, so he, he brings a very interesting background. And we were sitting around. The way, the way we do novels, the three of us, Joe DeSantis and, and Pete and I sit around and we go, okay, you know, the, we have a novel out. The publisher's at us. What interests us? I mean, because frankly, if it doesn't interest us, is we're sure not going to write a book that interests you. And so we kick around ideas. Well, about a year and a half ago, the, the, the timing, by the way, of collusion and the Mueller report is totally coincidental. We, we had scheduled this, you know, eight months ago. So uh, every once in a while you get lucky. Uh, although, although it does lead to some confusion. I mean, like several people have introduced me on radio shows going, and now with a brand new book about the Mueller report. Uh, <laughs> Uh, those people had not actually looked at the book. Um, so here, here's what we packaged and put together. First, there really is collusion. Robert Hansen was an FBI agent who spied for the Russians for 25 years. Uh, there was uh, Ames uh, was a CIA agent who spied for the Russians for about 20 years. Alger Hiss, the second or third highest person at the State Department, was given personally a medal by Stalin the highest medal the Soviet Union had for, for civilians 
for the quality of the work he had done representing Russia inside the State Department. So we have had, in fact, uh, Diana West in her remarkable book, American Betrayal, estimates that there were 500 Soviet agents at one point working in the United States government. So the notion of collusion is real. Second, the Russians do have this weird fascination with poison. I don't know of any other country in the world that, go, that goes to such radical extent. They invent new poisons, and then they find people to try them out on. Uh, so back about 2006, they wanted to kill a particular dissident uh, who had fled Russia and was living in London. They used polonium-210. Now, polonium-210 is only produced by the Russians. And because it's radioactive, it leaves a very clear trail. I mean, it's very clear. If you, if you have polonium-210 right here, you'll know exactly what it is, and you'll know exactly where it came from. And apparently, the Russians like you to know they're poisoning you because they're sending a signal to would-be defectors. Just remember, if you leave, we may kill you. So last year, they had two guys who went and put smeared a nerve agent on uh, the doorknob of a defector in, in, in uh, Britain. And of course, because London is the most heavily uh, televised place in the world, they literally have these guys on a series of street cameras walking up to the door. So they know exactly who they were, and they know exactly what they're doing. It was a Russian nerve agent. Uh, luckily, the British had an antidote for it. And the, so the, 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 the man and his daughter have survived, although I think they're both still seriously ill. Uh, these, these are long-term, I mean, these are serious poisons. These are not mild things. Um, so we wanted to take the collusion of an American and the Russian propensity for poisoning. And we began to put together a story. Now, we also wanted it to be a very modern story. So in Brett Garrett, we, we have a Navy SEAL who is severely wounded in combat, ends up to treat the pain uh, using opioids and ends up with opioid addiction. And part of the story is the struggle he has struggling with his addiction while trying to serve the country. Now, to put all this in context, I now do um, a uh, free uh, podcast at newtsworld.com. Last Sunday's podcast was uh, a CIA agent of 30 years' experience who had actually gotten people out of Moscow when the Russians were trying to kill him. And so he gives you a sense of part of the story that we're, we're telling you has a real depth of reality that these things really do happen and there really are techniques and approaches and uh, ways of trying to, to evade the uh, KGB. The other, uh, next, next Sunday, we have uh, two Army combat uh, doctors who are developing non-addictive pain treatments and talk about the work they're doing and how they're doing it. And it's really pretty fascinating stuff, trying to respond to this crisis of, of opioid addiction. Um, the, the process of putting the, writing this and laying it out, we want to communicate to people that you have to be very aware how dangerous Russia is. Uh, we open with, with a quote from Putin, uh, who said that the, uh, the Cold War isn't over. Uh, and uh, Putin had said at one point that the greatest disaster of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Empire. And, and people who talk about looking in Putin's eyes or understanding Putin or a reset with Russia. This is a KGB colonel who uh, spent time in Dresden, Germany, trying to keep the East Germans under control. Uh, he has all the skills and attitudes of a KGB colonel, which means that torture and murder are reasonable behaviors. It's all a day, you know, it's just a day's work. 
you know, three tortures, two murders. You know, tomorrow morning we'll go back and start again. Uh, <clears throat> he is extraordinarily tough. Uh, and he's surrounded by tough people. I mean, the base of Putin's power is three things. The KGB, now with a new name, but still the KGB. It is uh, criminals, and it's oligarch billionaires. And those three form the baseline of how he stays in power. If, if you're a reporter and you write negatively about Putin, you probably don't get to write a sequel, because they kill you. And uh, this, this is a regime of fear. Uh, he's playing a relatively weak hand, and he knows it. So he tries to win on the margins. He does things that are, that are not direct confrontation. He currently has some people in Venezuela to sort of annoy us. Uh, but he probably won't confront us if we're serious. Uh, he, uh, he, he he occupied Crimea knowing that no one would do anything, and he has been nibbling at eastern Ukraine, but in a very controlled, careful way. But as recently as a few weeks ago, they assassinated somebody in Kiev. Uh, so so this is an ongoing, very real problem. I think you'll find the novel very exciting uh, and, and uh, a page-turner. And I think you'll also find at the end of it that you... you you see, sometimes the value of, of, of fiction is it allows you to piece together at a human level realities that you, that, that you don't quite pull out of the daily headline. Uh, Tom Clancy was the, probably the best at this. The Hunt for Red October is still the best book ever written about modern submarine warfare. Uh, Clancy is the person who had a 747 crash into the Capitol. And years later, when people were so shocked at commercial airliners hitting the World Trade Center, I kept saying to him, you know, he wrote about this like almost a decade earlier. So when people say, oh, gee, we never thought about an airliner hitting a building. Well, Clancy wrote an entire novel about it. So I think there, there's sometimes when you, you learn things from novels that are more coherent and make more sense uh, than when you try to piece them together in daily newspaper reports. So I hope you'll take a look at it, and uh, I also hope you'll consider the podcast we do. Which, uh, we, which are very wide-ranging. We just did two on 5G, for example. We did one on Frank, Benjamin Franklin, one on Julius Caesar. So we do lots of different things. Now, the last thing I'll say is a commercial uh, for one of my favorite things, and that is that if you go to New York, uh, the American Museum of Natural History has an extraordinary new dinosaur exhibit. Uh, it's, it's only going to be there for a year, and then it's going to travel. But it's, a, it's about T-Rex. And it starts with the early tyrannosaurs and shows you how they evolved over about a hundred year, hundred million year period. It has uh, genuine feathered dinosaurs uh, in a way that you've never thought about them before. And everybody now agrees. This is an example of how science changes and why I don't sometimes get too excited about this week's, you know, poll of nine hundred scientists or something. Um, Thirty years ago, nobody believed dinosaurs came from and birds were the same. Today, virtually every paleontologist believes that birds came from dinosaurs uh, and that the dinosaurs were probably were feathered. Uh, but the American Museum now has them, so you can actually walk in and you see it. It really is different than describing it. They also have a, the, the growth cycle of a Tyrannosaurus rex starting with a little baby. It looks almost like a chicken, like a baby chick. And they grew, they grew like, they're like ostriches. They grew really, really fast. Uh, and finally, my favorite thing about the exhibit they had a uh, full-size movie screen with a forest and a Tyrannosaurus Rex, full-size full size, full size T-Rex. And it is motion responsive. So little kids will run up to the screen, and it will charge them. And you'll see these five- and six-year-olds running up and going, ooh, and running off. 
And it's just, it's, it's just, it's, it is one of the finest museum exhibits I've ever seen. And I happen to be a nut about paleontology, so I'll presently do a couple podcasts on dinosaurs. But I had to tell you that I, I just, I owed it to the American Museum for a really spectacular job. So with that wide-ranging, how's that for an introduction? Uh, I hope I made up a little bit for being late. I'd be glad to take questions. Do you do, you do the question? How do we do this? There are, um, I, yes, over here we have a mic, so we'll take the first question down here in the front row. Yes. Mr. Speaker, nice to see you again. Uh, my question is, do you have the book available in other languages? No, no not yet. An uh, audiobook. I'd be delighted if you could find two or three publishers for us. Very good. Yes, and in well, audiobook. One of my books just came out in Korean. What about audiobook? I'm sorry. Audiobook. It is available in audiobook. It's available on Kindle and it's available in hardcover. All three. Thank you very much. Well, I, I got a couple questions down the road, but the first one is: When is this going to be on the big silver screen? Uh, and have any of your books become uh, motion pictures? None of our books have been picked up yet, but we're we're, we're very interested in anybody who'd like to talk to. I think, right. I think a number. I've written a number of novels now that I think would easily be either a series on Netflix or would be a movie or whatever. And one, one serious question: uh, There's an article here I was reading this morning about free trade is the best way to combat China. And how how is the best way, would you say, to combat Russia? As you mentioned, you know, Putin's got his sort of three-legged sort of support system. China, something similar, I think. How would how how best can we combat that in the future? Well, let me say, first of all, Claire Christensen is here, and she's my co-author of a book that will come out this fall on China. Uh, anybody who thinks free trade is an effective way to combat China is nuts. Because the Chinese don't practice free trade. I mean, we've tried this for 20 years. But the Chinese practice is, let me steal all your intellectual property, then I'll manufacture it and sell it back to you. And if you have a really smart, small company, let me buy it so I own it. Uh, and then let me rig the game so that you can't, you know, we can't compete. And Huawei, for example, has total monopoly in China. I mean, if AT&T said, hi, we'd like to come compete in China, they'd laugh at them. So let, let's be clear. I mean, you, you can't have free trade with somebody who cheats on every front, and, and, and that requires really rethinking things. Now, Russia's a totally different problem. R Russia basically, other than oil and gas, doesn't have much, but they have a lot of oil and gas, and it provides them a pretty big revenue. Um, they, uh, they have a society which is decaying. The average Russian male lives about as long as the average Guatemalan male. Uh, they have a huge suicide rate, a huge alcoholism problem, a uh, tremendous abortion rate. Um, and they're demographically very, very weak. Uh, and so Putin is playing a basically a strategically long-term losing hand, but playing it tactically very aggressively. And the fact is they got 5,000 nuclear weapons. So you, you've got to be very, very... I mean, Trump, Trump is not irrational to be careful but tough. And, and that's... If you watch him, that's what he's doing. Much tougher than, than, uh, than, than uh, uh, Obama was... So, so Obama, you know, really was totally confused by how to deal with him. I think that because of his business style and because of the deals he's cut, that Trump feels very strongly that you should never cut all communication at the top. 
So he wants to talk to Kim Jong-un. He wants to talk to Putin. He wants to talk to Xi Jinping. But if you'll watch, the policies underneath are really tough. So he says, hi, we can really be good friends. By the way, I'm cutting off your country uh, in 23 different ways. But don't take it personal. You know, and, and I have no idea what they're going to do yet, but it's pretty clear if you listen to Secretary Pompeo and National Security Advisor Bolton that uh, they're going to dramatically raise the sanctions on Cuba and on, on Russia for being involved in Venezuela. Uh, big fan of you, sir. I've, um, I love your lucidness, your coherence at Fox. Um, your novel is probably uh, deserves to uh, be made a movie, and perhaps the reason none of them up until now is because Hollywood is in the hands of liberals. And my question to you is, shouldn't conservatives have their own filmmaking capital? I, I say this because I've been doing research, and I've uncovered that over the last 70 years, uh, Hollywood has been implanting at a subliminal level uh, liberal message coded messages which have shifted public opinion massively towards their view of the world and um, so from that perspective there's a double reason why conservatives should have their own filming uh, capital so to produce films that do not send liberal coded propaganda well I, I, I agree with you although th there are some firms that do that I mean there are and there are a fair number of conservative films that come out, and a fair number that do surprisingly well. Uh, but, but it's interesting in Hollywood, if you make a really liberal film that doesn't sell very well, you have greater prestige than if you make a best-selling conservative movie. Just, now, we have made, I mean, first of all, in-house, we've done nine documentaries, one of which is available uh, online at Amazon Prime. Uh, has a pretty good viewership. Uh, it's, it's called The First American. It's a documentary about George Washington. Uh, and uh, we, we, we also have our, probably our most important documentary, really legitimate this year, we're going to show it at the Vatican, is uh, called Nine Days That Changed the World and is uh, John Paul II going back to Russia, I mean going back to Poland in 1979. And that nine-day uh, pilgrimage was probably the beginning of the end of the Soviet Empire. It shook the system in Poland so deeply that they never fully recovered. And uh, this is the anniversary of his doing that. And so we're going to show it, I think, on June 5th uh, at the Vatican. And we're going to show it later in the year in Poland. It was actually translated into Polish and shown on Polish national television. We're, we're really proud of that. We also did a movie uh, called Ronald Reagan, Rendezvous with Destiny, which, which is, uh, you, you know, it's really a good film because if you put Ronald Reagan on the screen, it's really a good film. It has nothing to do with our ability to do movies. It's just we had a lot of Reagan on the film. And, and you, you're reminded both how good he was and also how wise he was. Uh, yes, I had a question about Chinese demographics. Now, you've heard about the one-child policy, two-child policy, forced abortions and that sort of thing. But I was asked, asked a question of a demographic expert in China uh, about about those policies and, and how they work, and he talked about loosening the one-child policy. But he said, I think he said that there are sometimes ethnic-specific birth control policies in China, and I'm wondering if China might have an engineering policy, for example, like, say, in Tibet, 
they had, if they had a differential birth control policy for native Tibetans and Han Chinese so, and engineer it in such a way that you have uh, more births of Han Chinese in, in Tibet as opposed to the t- Tibetans and, and might have a differential policy in, uh, with other ethnic groups in China. Uh, it's not so much that they differentiate on the birth policy as they do on the health policy. It's harder to get health care, harder to get food. Uh, and there's no question that in Tibet uh, they are gradually grinding down the Tibetan population and gradually replacing it. Uh, it's less clear that that's true in the West uh, where they're dealing with the Uyghurs. Uh, there, there they are using concentration camps, uh, and they are really aggressively trying to break uh, their commitments. It's fascinating that for some reason the Uyghurs don't get any kind of uh, momentum in the Muslim world as an oppressed minority. Um, and it's kind of like they all shrug it off and go, well, you know, life's like that and the Chinese are tough. But the Uyghurs are clearly discriminated against very significantly. And there actually are a number of very small uh, populations, particularly along the south where you have mountains and jungles. Uh, and uh, almost all of them are disadvantaged now. You know, almost all of them, uh, their children go to schools where they have to learn Chinese. Uh, and that, that that's a significant part of, of erasing their cultural memories. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Recently, uh, recently you mentioned uh, for Westerners, you get used to the thinking about chess game. Uh, for China, they like the Go game, right? So just wondering, in your novel, uh, this one, and Collusion, or your coming up novel, you say that, is that a fall in China? Is that the one? The book this fall is nonfiction. Oh, nonfiction. It's wondering to reflect this kind of thinking. Uh, Which is actually Wei Chi. Wei Chi, yes. Wei Chi, which is a Chinese name for Go. Goes the Japanese name. But um, for the the rest of you, it's very simple. It's a point that Kissinger made in his book on China. And a study that was done by uh, by an uh, Army uh, Lieutenant Colonel 15 years ago. Chess is a bounded game of a limited number of spaces in which the object is ultimately to capture the other king. Um, and there's a fair amount of violence inherent in chess because you're, you're trying to take the other person's pieces. Go is actually as a, as a much, much bigger board and is a territorial game in which it's more important that you gain territory than that you kill the other person's uh, pieces. Um, Go teaches you two things that are really interesting. One is to focus on the whole board, to never make a decision about any one place until you've rethought its context in the whole board. Uh, And the other is to be very patient in looking at how you can acquire territory. And very often, that that means you minimize attacking your opponent because you're actually trying to acquire a position. We we actually had, there's a national uh, GO uh, organization out in Arlington that... that, uh, is very generous. They came over one night and uh, for a payment of uh, pizza and beer. Uh, they spent several hours with us uh, showing us the rudimentary entry to go. They had one uh, person from China who's actually a professional go player who was in a different league and was pretty scary. Uh, but what it teaches you when, you when you look at it and think about it, um, the uh, you can sort of see, for example, the South China Sea project, or you can see... Um, the, the uh, Bolt and, and, and uh, I always get that wrong. The, the Belden Road, I always get it wrong. The Belden Road project as, as an example of go. So the Chinese end up 
running Genoa, which is the largest port in Italy, and they end up running Trieste, which is a port which has access to Austria and South Germany. And, and it's all very patient and very methodical and very pleasant. And, and, and Go teaches you, in a sense, to avoid conflict. Because your goal is to win, not to fight. So it's very, very different. And, and uh, uh, I think very, well, very, very worth looking at Huawei and the rise of 5G from China's standpoint is clearly sort of a Go process. It's a very well thought out, very long-term strategy. Uh, that we were totally uh, invisible to us because it didn't fit any of our models. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I take it that the, um, the spies for the Russians in collusion know exactly what they're doing. Uh, but now we're talking about the use increasingly by both China and Russia of sharp power, that is to penetrate using social media, for example, other kinds of connections into other societies uh, in ways that support their interests, but the participants don't necessarily know what they're doing. We think of the old uh, uh, notion of useful idiots. How do we combat the use of uh, social media, other, in, uh, other instruments of communication in a democratic society? Uh, that is intended to cause confusion, create polarization, and uh, and so forth. I think the best way to do it is is, is uh, to be clear and public about it. And when when they engage in a particular campaign, you just have to make it very public that that's what they're doing. So if you see X, just know that's the Chinese, or just know that's the Russians. But I th I think the great problem for any totalitarian system is openness, because it 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 it, it dissolves the mystery that allows the totalitarian system to be dominant. That's why totalitarians put so much emphasis on controlling history and eliminating things. It's why you have what, what Orwell in 1984 called a memory hole. Uh, where it's why the modern left wants to take down statues and, and eliminate language and wipe out you know, books. And I mean, totalitarian systems do not function very well uh, if you have an open society and people get to hear other, other voices. Hi. Um, my question is, there's hundreds of us parents who are going to Capitol Hills today for two days, engaging our legislators to um, raise the issue of corruption, collusion in family court. Um, and I was wondering if you could give us some advice to be effectively engaging our legislators because we are actually so broken in family court losing our children, access to our children. So I, w I wanted a little bit of advice to uh, be effective. The best advice I can give you is personal stories. If you reduce it down so that they're confronting the reality, this is a real person, this really happened, and it's really wrong. But not, gen not generalizations, not theories, not ideology. Real cases of people who have been cheated of their children by a corrupt court system. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is, uh, what does Russian interference in 2020 look like to you, including uh, digital warfare, hacking, deepfakes, and AI? Um, if I were predicting, um, Russian influence will not be nearly as important as the two parties claiming Russian influence. So, 
If there's a particular bad story about your candidate, you promptly jump up and say, the Russians did it, the Russians did it. Uh, and if you read one of my favorite examples, there's a book called Shattered. It's a terrific book uh, by two reporters who convinced the publisher uh, to give them a big advance. They could spend a full year on Hillary Clinton's campaign because she was going to shatter uh, the glass ceiling. And on election night, they suddenly needed the, a new theory of their book. Uh, and when you read the book, they make very clear that election night, none of her senior staff had the guts to go in and say, you know, you lost because you're a lousy candidate. So they sat around and said, well, what do we tell her? And somebody said, the Russians did it. And she loved that because it allowed her to not be responsible. And that's a significant part of how you had this sudden escalation after election night of the Russian interference, et cetera. Now, they've been at this since, I think, July, because they were just determined that somehow Trump was involved with the Russians, which is, if you think about it, I'll give you an example I've been using the last couple of days. Let's talk about obstruction of justice. Is deleting 33,000 emails obstruction? Is using a hammer to break up your cell phones obstruction? Uh, is using bleach bit to destroy the hard, the memory obstruction? Apparently not. Well, if those three things aren't obstruction, how could you possibly suggest Trump had any obstruction? But the double standard, I mean, the left has this, this capacity for, for amnesia about everything which hurts them and self-righteous exaggeration about everything that helps them. That is just, it's, it's, historians will look back on this period someday and see it as a period of almost psychotic behavior. Gentlemen, please thank Speaker Gingrich. Thank you all. Yes, he is going. Uh, Speaker Gingrich will make his way uh, to sign uh, copies of the book. Again, if you do not have a copy and would like to purchase one, you can do so right outside of the auditorium. Again, thank you for coming to the Heritage Foundation today. We appreciate your attendance and again your patience uh, for the start of today's event. Thank you, everyone.